everyone wants to have control of their life, to make their own choices, decisions, and set goals that are meaningful and important to them. And students who are neurodivergent are no exception. Self-determined research indicates a host of positive quality of life outcomes for people who are neurodivergent, including better employment and independent living outcomes. Whether your students want to attend college or obtain employment after high school, they will need to acquire the skills necessary to pursue career life directions that are personally meaningful and are of their own volition. The self-determination course offered by CBI is an ideal tool for teachers to help students develop the essential competencies for self-determined behavior. The course consists of five modules with comprehensive lesson plans that are, include embedded resources easily adapted for your diverse learners. Using the built-in self-reflection and assessment exercises, teachers can assess students' growth towards their self-determination and self-advocacy behaviors. If you're interested in learning more, check out the CBI Consultants webpage at www.cbiconsultants.com. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Mayor's Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. On the podcast today, we've got Valerie Clack. Welcome to the podcast, Valerie. Thank you, Ben. Uh, in Hawaii, we'd say mahalo. In Lakota, we'd say pilamayaye. Uh, oh, thank you. Right on. Um, they have all my gratitude. Cool. I've heard. I'm I'm producing this podcast in the lands of the Comox, Homoko, Klehus, and Klawan First Nations, who were one nation, part of the Coast Salish people, till we settlers came in and forcibly put them into reserves. Uh, I think I was learning some of the. I was trying to learn some of the language recently. Um, Good for there's, you. There's uh yeah, there's uh there's a, a local school district, the Cathet School District, which is wonderful. Lowercase Q A T H E T. I can't remember what it stands for, but they've been going through a lot of renaming, and so Cathet is, is a term that's come from the Tlaman Nation. It's something to do with community. I I don't know what it is right now. Um, okay. And so and so we've got like a regional government that's changed its name to Cathet. We've got the local hospital that's changed their name to Cathet. Uh, and, right. the local, and the local school district has changed their name to Cathet. And there's some, some push for the city to do the same. And, uh, and the Cathet school district has this really cool thing where they, they, they introduce a common word every day and uh, or a word, ah. or, or maybe it's a word of the week or something anyway. And uh, sure. Yeah. So, uh, but <laughs> all that reference, and I don't actually know if this is from them, but um, I know there's a, a a bunch of folks in my area, and the greeting is T A N S I. Okay. Uh, Tansi, maybe. Oh, Tansi. Yeah, I've yeah. heard that. Yeah, yeah. So Tansi to you. Tansi. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that might not be from Talaman, but it's one, it's definitely some folks nearby here in, in the sort of area around Vancouver, British Columbia. There are, there are, there are a lot of folks using Tansi. That's a greeting. Awesome. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, I think um, in Hawaii, there's been a real renaissance of Alelo Hawaii and there are a lot of, mm, I'm not going to say a lot, but there are some very intentionally established schools Mm. to educate 
the children, the keiki, only in Olelo, Hawaii, which I think is beautiful. And I get confused about which are like public charter schools, which are private schools. Um, but they're in every area that I've been to, which is mostly windward side um, of Oahu, which is the island that I'm living on in mm. Hawaii. Um, there are accessible Lilo Hawaii schools, which I think is beautiful, mm. but it is mostly for um, the Kanaka, the native Hawaiian people to go and learn. But I think the Department of Education for Hawaii does have, um, they have like an initiative to bring culture into the schools. So the my daughter's public DOE school, mm. they still have like the five English values, the five R's, and then they have five um, values of, I think, of aloha. And they have a different aloha Hawaii word for each. Mm. Um, you know, it's like an acronym. And yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Just, it's great. It's great to watch my daughter go to school here and still be embedded in the culture of the place where she's from, which I think is really important to Indigenous identities and how you maintain it across generations post-colonization. Right. I had, uh, well, you know, Naomi to share on and uh, it's a good episode yeah, to listen sure. to because she talks all about the the culture-based education and the different yeah. kinds of schools and how they all work and how her kids go to those. And and uh, I think I think that's the focus of her doctoral work is kind of related to sort of, you know, uh, building more capacity in terms of kind of culture-based education. I could be wrong on that, but... Um, uh, I think so. I think she's doing the Indigenous Leadership Program right. at Shamanan. So I think it's a it's it's such a cool and exciting push, right? To mm. have people um, gain, I think, credibility now, generations later, to enter into these worlds of academia and like still carry your culture with you. Because I mm. think. In the past, I felt like you had to choose, right? Are you going mm. to be an expert and go to university and be in academia? Or are you going to stay in your homelands and stay embedded culture and mm. do that instead? And it felt like a binary choice, which people like Naomi now and others and so mm. many others are just like, no, we're going to do it all. <laughs> well, I hear a lot about we hear a lot about decolonization, but we hear a lot also about indigenizing and indigenization yes. of sort of academia and that sort of thing and what that mm -hmm. all looks like. And there's some, there's some folks I've been trying to get on that are, there's a lot, there's a lot of folks I think now that as I start to dig deeper in, but that are sort of writing books and writing sort of rewriting kind of, you know, what research should look like through an indigenous lens and and uh yeah. and indigenous research practices and so on and so forth and how you can sort of embed them in your you know sort of colonial academic sort of situation you know i was thinking today about a couple last couple of days about you know the people just striving to get their phds and the work they have to put in to get those and it's great and it's awesome when they get them and so on and so forth mm -hmm. but but that you know, the whole, this whole sort of hierarchy of education of bachelors and masters and, 
you know yeah and, and, and even the language of it like masters of course right is there's, there's a lot there's a lot of interesting bits there but that 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 uh i mean that's all colonialism too like i mean you know yeah indigenous folks weren't striving to be you know striving to get phds before we came along right mm-hmm. you know i mean they're they're certainly learning and you know they're elders with you know incredible amounts of knowledge probably much more than a lot of phds that are out there um and yeah. uh but there was no need for this sort of categorization and letters after your name and all this right. kind of stuff right right it's, but it's interesting how you know just I don't know, and I, this is a, as a, you know, as a as a white settler looking in, but how, how, uh, you know, some of the sort of colonial assimilative things that you know we did to folks are still now I have no sort of come in a way kind of part of their culture. I think I had a had a really good conversation with um, a guest. I forget who it was. I think it was Evan August. Maybe we we're talking about. I was trying to understand sort of the black church um, mm. and how, you know, you know, Christianity, you know, generally speaking, you know, as, as I understood stood it, you know, there wasn't, you know, a lot of Christianity in Africa initially okay, um, you know, before missionaries came, I mean, and whatnot. And so, but yet the church has become such a, you know, a huge piece of black culture in, in America. Um, yeah. And, and I was trying to sort of understand that. And he had a really good explanation about sort of, you know, the, the, the way black folks do church and the way white folks do church are quite different. Um, okay. you know, and sort of, you know, the, the kind of spiritual and, you know, sort of, you know the positive values of Christianity. Uh, I think Black folks really, you know, embody. You know, without mm-hmm. all of the sort of um, controlling stuff that white folks use Christianity for, um, and mm. Christianity and and the church became, you know, and I could be butchering this. I, I know I am, but the church became <laughs> I think for for Black folks, particularly when they were you know during during enslavement. You know, that was sort of the one area where they could, you know, kind of congregate and get together and, um, you know, almost a, a pseudo safe space, you know, yeah. during those times. Um, and uh, so it's just it's, it's it's you know, and with it's not no pun intended, but it's it's just not black and white. It's it's, you know, but because my my experience and, and I don't know why I'm tangenting down this way so far. My experiences with the church growing up were quite negative and and uh, mm. but my experiences were with the white church and um, yeah um, and so it just makes me think of sort of you know uh, I mean I think in, even indigenous folks there are some folks that are you know that are still in, oh, yeah. in, into the church and that sort of thing yeah it, there's a big connection in indigenous culture I'm just gonna say indigenous but yeah. I'm really talking about like the North American sort of plains tribes probably because mm. it's more of what I know it's different yeah like Southern California the mission system right and in mm. Northern California where I'm from there were more like rancherias um and then 
there were missions in like the Plains Indians in sort mm. South and North yeah. Dakotas, um, like Minnesota, kind of all those tribal lands spanned the, the area, not the United States borders of today. Mm. Right. So um, when they were doing mission schools, my grandma's from, I'm Oglala Lakota. Okay. And my grandma is from the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Mm. Um, it's on the lands of the Ocheti Sakowin, the Seven Council Fires, um, which is all the area that they established with the Fort Laramie Treaty in 1968. So if you ever go mm. there, all everything I just said, everyone will say that. And <laughs> where is that geographically? Uh, South Dakota, okay. um, near the Black Hills. Mm. And so... Um, Mount Rushmore mm. <laughs> is the big iconic sort of USA landmark. Yep. And that is a real desecration of the Six Grandfathers Mountains. The Black mm. Hills was a sacred place and now it has the presidential heads and it looks cute on the magnets and the postcards. But when you go and see the mountain with your own eyes, mm. it looks really different and it looks a little sad because mm. you have this pristine nature and then this footprint <laughs> on just the front of it just the face of it and it's such an interesting mix of culture and capitalism mm. and because the you walk in and it's South Dakota, it's plains land. It's really beautiful. It's very wide open spaces, mm. grasslands. It reminds me of the ocean. When the wind blows on the grass, it looks like ocean waves. It's beautiful. Mm. But when you go to somewhere like Mount Rushmore, you drive down the road, there's often an elder singing and praying with a drum to, mm. I think, reclaim space, you know, reconnect with any ancestral spirits i don't know maybe cool. they're just there to say hey we're still here yeah yeah, um, yeah and then you get into the like official area and it's brand new it's pristine it's clean there's bathrooms there's a gift shop and there's like a viewing area and mm. you're like standing on like the rubble <laughs> and yeah. looking up at these like carvings wow but all around you if you don't look right at the faces the rest is just nature and mountains and trees. Mm. And it's just, it's so funny. It's such, such a dichotomy. It's such a, I don't know. I feel like a very American experience, right? Mm -hmm. Of always having a lot of things held at once. But I guess that just ties to place because I came into two. Well, what's the, you mentioned <laughs> the, the, the six, what the six grandfathers? Is that what the mountains were called? And so what's yeah. the significance of those? Um, they, I think named it after ancestral chiefs um i'd have to like quick google that but yeah, yeah. um it was i mean i would recommend everyone search it up to mm -hmm. look at the mountain before it was blown up and carved mm. because it's really beautiful um but yeah it's mm. interesting because um oh yeah the so there's so much, but Black Elk Speaks is a great Lakota um, book mm. to read about okay. Lakota wisdom. They He talks about, um, I think, you know, philosophy and religion from a Lakota worldview. Mm. And it's kind of like 
I feel like a lot of Native people have read Black Elk Speaks and Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Those are like the two required readings. Mm. But um, the Tunkashila Shakpe, the six grandfathers, was named by Nicholas Black Elk after a vision. Mm. Um, and he was talking about the six sacred directions. Mm. So our medicine wheels, yes. have you seen them? They're like I the have. circles and it's yep. the four divisions. So yep. north, um, east, southwest. Mm. Um, but then it's a 3D globe. And so then you also get above and below. So those mm. would be your six directions. Right. Um, so they were saying that the six grandfathers represented kindness and love mm. with years and wisdom, just like six grandfathers. Mm. But um, yeah, it's sometimes I forget things because, right, I am. Well, that's something to talk about. So my grandma was from Pine Ridge. Yep. She went to the Holy Rosary Mission School. So that's mm. where the tie-in was from what you were speaking about mm. with Black church culture. Mm. Um, Native church culture is as varied probably as Native people, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, my grandma stayed in Holy Rosary Mission until the Indian Relocation Act in the 60s. And it was supposed to be like a government, I think, vocational training program but i think it was just another um tool of colonization to displace people was it was it the same as these residential schools this holy mission holy it was i don't know if you had to there was different things over the years so like the mm. holy rosary mission school exists today it was rebranded as the red cloud um school mm. So now it's like a private Catholic school um, and they teach Lakota language and philosophy as part of their curriculum, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Um, so it's some people kept participating, right? And some people had an overall good experience and others did not. Sure. And so what we see now is stories coming out and we have truth and reconciliation day right we have mm -hmm. one shirt day we have a lot of the stories coming out we have people finding the remains of the children yeah. that who are now our ancestors and i mean i think it's hard to reconcile things like that when we know about cognitive dissonance today and we mm. have um, native people in psychology we have native people in trauma therapy right yeah. and you also still have indian church leaders and you still have um indian i imagine there's probably indian missionaries yeah. um so i don't know it's just it's a mix you're gonna see people who won't step foot inside of a a western church building mm -hmm. um and you'll see multi-generational families that have always gone to church and will keep going um yeah. in my family it's the same we have we have our traditional family members and then we have our our christian family members mm. right and we're all we're also family and we mm. all 
respect each other. We all know who's who and who's mm. making which choice and that's okay. Um, it's just a part of like, I think the truth of living in the United States today as yeah. native people who, um, I think like people that weren't displaced from their families, like, well, maybe displaced geographically, but didn't lose their family connections. Right. right? Cause it's two different stories too. For some people that were displaced and lost connections or didn't have a phone. The lucky thing for my grandma not losing connection with her family is simply that they had a phone available to them at the neighbor's house. Mm. I mean, mm. that's that's not everyone's story. And to have mm. a phone at the neighbor, like it wasn't even in their family home, you know? Mm. Um so um yeah, I don't know. It's just a long story to say that now me as a Lakota person, I would be considered an urban Indian, somebody that lives off our tribal lands, somebody that mm. lives off of our ancestral lands. And I've been back to Pine Ridge over the years for some ceremonies and family funerals. Um, but it would be tough for our family to move there and live there. We live in Oahu. My husband's Korean. Mm. He was born in <laughs> Nairobi in Kenya. Mm. Um, and now we live in Hawaii. So it's just like, Eddie, I feel like now there's so many big connections to make um, and where people live. And I think one of the reasons that I called myself the Lakota BCBA like on social media mm. was to remind people that we're still here. We're still diverse, that we're not in the olden days. Mm -hmm. um, and there's like a live thriving culture in today. Like people are doing things. Yeah. Time moved on. So, so have we. Um, and I think it's powerful. I think it's powerful for, um, young people to be able to see different types of whatever whatever people are doing in their own cultures because then it opens that possibility up for them and we everybody talks about that now about how representation matters mm. and i think that applies to lakota kids too yeah what's uh, not that i'm doing yeah no, no no you're you're doing it for sure you're <laughs> um, you know you're representing in your way what what uh like what's it what's what's it mean to be Lakota? Like what's sort of the I mean what makes one Lakota? Oh my goodness. What doesn't it mean? No, I mean there are more than 567 federally recognized tribes in the United States of America alone. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the diversity of like what we even define as indigeneity, talking about a lot of different people and some yep. people you had, oh, I, I only remember her name is Mari talking about the Mesoamerican experience yep. on your podcast. Naomi talking about the Hawaiian experience. To be Lakota, ah, I, it ties you to a place. And it mm. ties you to a people and it ties you to a history mm. that is so rich. And I'm so proud. I love being Lakota. Anybody mm. that knows me knows that's my tribe. It's one of the first things I like to say about myself. Mm. Um, 
And I mean, we have all the great sheets. We have the Black Hills. Um, it's a powerful kind of ancestry. It's a powerful lineage to come mm. from. And our mm. families, um, we in Hawaiian culture, they track their ancestry and they have like this process of reciting their lineage. Mm, and yes. It's it's incredible. It takes like a long time and it's beautiful. And it sounds like the Oli. It sounds like a chant. Um, in Lakota culture, we have a similar um, practice, but you're named in your tribal name through like the lineage of a chief. Mm. And so it's exciting when you say like, oh, I'm Lakota. Oh, I'm Lakota. I'm Lakota too. Like what kind are you? Rosebud? You standing rock? Oh, I'm a Guala. And then you get to say like, oh, what chief? Like I'm named through Red Cloud. So that's mm. for us and my family. And it's, you tend to ask who your people are and mm. who, like where you're from and like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. Who's, who's your people in Pine Ridge, right? And mm. then you would share, um, you know, your family names and let everybody know. And people know people it's like when you're from hawaii you do the same thing and everybody will say like, oh yeah okay i think i know them and then you feel like oh that's my cousin you're like i don't know i don't know if that's my real cousin my grandma told me that's my cousin <laughs> i think i think that's that's a lot of what it means to be lakota it's i think it's to be proud and try to stay humble because there's um there's it's all the things at once there's darkness there's light there's grief and there's a lot of victory too um so i don't know that's to me i guess what i like about being lakota is that even though i don't live on my ancestral homelands that i still have my family and when i uh reach out to people they're there for me mm. and it's i don't have to say much more than that you know like i don't have yeah. to say why i deserve your help or why I should be indebted to you and please be indebted to me. It's just, no, you're Lakota, come. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I find you, that I find that in a lot of indigenous culture. Hmm. You mentioned a, a few times, you mentioned when we talked last time, but Red Cloud is your heritage. So Chief Red Cloud, uh, when was he around? Um, when was his time? He, he was in the 1800s. I mm. think he passed in the early 1900s. I'm mm. so glad I kept my Google handy today. Yeah. He, he passed away in 1909. So um, he was, um, they talk, okay, his line, and this is one of the things I love about being Lakota is like we have such good history but the line on his Wikipedia entry mm. says that he was one of the most capable Native American opponents whom the United States Army faced in the Western Territories come on nice. that's like that's a good headline <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome but I mean it's just interesting because we have a lot of you know our war chiefs and our war leaders and mm. our warrior history is kind of really integral to like the cultural stories that we tell over time mm -hmm. and also talking about like dichotomies and things that are both true at the same time mm -hmm. is also true that like native americans historically and today 
serve in the military at really, really, really high rates per people group. And mm. if you ever go to powwow anywhere, they have an honor guard that comes in first. And it's a big tradition to honor the veterans and those wow. who have served. And it's, um, it's again, it's like a both and situation, right? Mm. And we still, as a culture, remember like the Wounded Knee Massacre every year. We remember the yeah. Dakota 38 plus two every year. Um, and also we have an honor guard at every powwow. And mm. in my family, my grandpa served in the Navy. Yeah. Um, it's just, a it's a complex history, which I think is so embedded in growing up in a, in a colonized, settled land area right and having the u.s just on top of your homelands it's interesting you mentioned that i I, uh i read a book recently and it was it was my kind of book i think it was written for written for children um but uh uh, it's easy (laughs) to read but i forget what it was called but it was about what was the name there was a there was a term um it'll come to me um but it was like basically Related to some sort of I don't know, skill level or something that someone had to attain in, in, in this particular tribe. And they talked about, you know, just the, 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 the being war, a, a warrior clan. And, and they talked about how as you progress through the different stages, I think to eventually become a chief or whatever, you have to be a warrior and you have to be designated this sort of warrior chief and you have to do certain, certain, you know, sort of um, labors, I guess, to sort of achieve that, achieve that, 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 that status and whatnot. And, and this kid, this, I think the, the, the story of this, this boy kind of was similar that he, I think he didn't grow up in, 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 sort of on the reservation he was sort of outside of it and he was trying to sort of you know achieve this but but then he kind of then he got conscripted into the into the military um but then the the whole story is about kind of how the acts that he participated in the war were were enough to qualify him sort of for these war chief kind of level of status. And so, and, and mm-hmm. eventually, and, you know, and, and he became somewhat of a war hero in, you know, in sort of Western eyes, but he was also, you know, this now war chief in his tribe because of, you know, participating. And so I saw that connection and it's funny, we're talking today, November 9th, yesterday, November 8th was indigenous veterans day. Yeah. Um, you know, honoring all of the indigenous veterans that weren't allowed to participate in, you know, these Remembrance Day services and sort of post yeah. whatever post-war services until very recently. So no, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's interesting that, 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 cause that's that kind of colonial sort of thing, but war is war and, you know, and if yeah. they're able to participate, then it's, yeah. It's interesting. It's mm-hmm. interesting. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is Lakota. I think to see, I think maybe that's another good word to link to indigenous identity, which I would think is resilience, right? Mm, Because 
that's like a big tie. And I think you'd have to be very resilient in order to hold both things in your life and be like a native soldier for any, yeah. any military. Even the trainings practices, I talk a lot about this as a BCBA. Um, I serve a lot of military families mm. um, throughout my career, yeah. which is funny because I've served so far zero native families in my career. Mm. Um, I, I have worked with um, Kanaka Oevi, um, native Hawaiian families now that we're in Oahu. But as far as I know, no, um, if it was ever... No, I've never had a case hmm. of a tribal family. And again, I lived off my tribal lands, but I just, uh, I always think it's interesting when I'm the only one in the room <laughs> that has yeah. a link to uh, the tribes at all. But that's not the case now in my workplace. Um, now we have a pretty, we're a small team hmm. on the windward side of Oahu. And we have a fairly diverse organization, I would say. Mm. Having said that, it, right? Truth <laughs> of my lived experience yeah. to now having, I have one RBT supervisee from Seneca Nation. Nice. And um, we have people from Aotearoa, um, Hawaii. Nice. And um, I... Well, after hearing Mari's podcast, you're talking about the Mesoamerican experience. Yeah. I was chatting a little bit about what it's like um, and who considers what to be indigenous, right? Because mm -hmm. in Northern California, I was, um, my mom worked hard to keep us in like native communities and we went to Redding Rancheria for healthcare and community events and they'd have ceremony there sometimes. Um, and we went to the, there was a, they're still going, I think the local Indians for education center, the life center. Mm. And they worked with some of the Indian ed programs and they did um, a Palain boss summer camp. And where I'm from in Northern California, there was, the West Camp, the Whiskey Town Environmental School, and that was mm. like the public schools. You got to go out into the forest and camp, learn how to make fire. Mm. And then I got to go double because I got to go to Blake, Pauline Boss Camp too. And it was mm. just like Indian camp. We nice. learned how to tan hides wow. and um, I don't know, make fires. And it was all like Similar, right? Nature things. And that's kind of the new talk coming up is where does our sustainability practices for environmental change link to indigenous culture and knowledge? Yeah. Um, and that was very much what that camp was for, was to build community and mm. to maintain cultural practices with nature. And in a lot of indigenous cultures, people are not separate from nature. We are a part of nature and yeah. you'll find some tribal languages that don't even have a word for some of these ideas mm. because it was so embedded and it was just an, an assumption a worldview that you're talking from mm. so you wouldn't have a separate word for it um but all of those um organizations put me in really 
just cool environments with cool people that I got to grow up and learn from and look up to. And uh, we had, um, I, I'm going to like be so silly and not know their last names, but Jonathan and Michaela. Michaela, I know her last name is Catalfano, but they ran the Peace and Dignity Journeys. And it was interesting because um, I don't know if they ran it, but they were how I signed up. I was mm. a cross-country runner. And okay. so um, there are a lot of Indigenous practices around running historically. Mm. And like running as prayer was something that was being revived when I was running in high wow. school. And they do the ancestral run between the two big mountains, Mount Lassen and Mount Shasta in, in Northern California. And another thing they did were the peace and dignity journeys. And it was the jornadas, the peace y dignidad, paz y dignidad. I don't speak Spanish. I'm sorry. But they ran through indigenous lands from South America up through North America. Um, and I believe they crossed the border into Canada as well. But mm. I ran the leg through our areas in Reading. And Ooh. that was like the first time, not the first time, I, I don't imagine it was the first time, but it was an important time where everyone talked about unifying the indigenous peoples and the first peoples of the lands because mm. that was the connection. It was not like a big Boston marathon feel, right? Right. But every nation along the entire coast was represented by the people. And mm. so uncles with their vans, aunties with their coolers, like we were supported the whole way. There were plenty of runners if you needed to rest. Um, there were extra cars if somebody wanted to cheer on the runners and they couldn't walk that mm. far, right? There was just, it was a really definitive experience for me and mm. helped me see, like, what do I consider indigenous? And I always just thought it mm. was the first peoples. Right. And I didn't see, you hear that now, like, oh, we didn't cross the borders, the borders crossed us, right? Mm -hmm. And there's, the more people try to build these really big walls and borders between people groups, you're just going to keep finding ways to stay connected with your families and your mm -hmm. communities. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think it's very cool now talking with people. I feel like there's a lot more freedom to talk about these issues of identity. I think thanks to social media, yeah. podcasts like yours, Instagram, like there's just a lot out there now that my grandma didn't have. She mm -hmm. couldn't tap into. and so. Um, yeah, oral, oral history stories, talking story is what they call it here. Visiting is usually what they call it. Like what my grandma would say, mm. um, it's just taking time to sit and talk to people. And that would yeah. be how you'd exchange ideas. And, you know, it gets the flavor of the person you're talking to. So the, I think emphasis on like, I don't know, correct fact sometimes that can take on a different <laughs> meaning in mm, different yeah, cultures yeah. because it's very much tied to like who are you talking to how did mm. they say that right mm. and that has um a different weight and then uh culturally we have talking circles too where you'd have mm. a group of mm. people come together and talk on a topic or something yeah. um and that was where people could maybe elders could maybe 
try to agree on something and come yeah. to a common consensus of ideas. Um, and that's not, that's like historical. That happens even today. Yeah. Um, it's just like the fun parts of being in a, a family where everybody argues and bickers until you can settle down and all agree. <laughs> that's awesome. I see some of the, it's good. I'm seeing some of like the indigenous kind of research that's happening right now is using, using those circles as sort of that yeah. kind of community participatory research approach and, you know, totally you know, going to the talking circle or the, I think, so I had Grant Bruno on the podcast. Um, he's a PhD student in Alberta and he's got a young, maybe almost, almost a teenage son, maybe now autistic son. And he's doing research on autism in indigenous communities in Canada. And he, uh, you know, when I when I had him on, I was like, "So, what what are you, you going to do your research on? What's the research question?" I said, "I have no idea. That's that's going to be up to the circle. The circle nice. will come up with the question, and uh, yep. the circle will dictate the the procedures and the recruitment and all that sort of thing." And I was like, "Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is, this is uh, well, that's the way we do things. Mm-hmm. That's the way we make decisions. And so, who am I to?" you know, ask questions that matter to me, you know? Yeah. So, oh, that's uh, beautiful. Yeah, and that's that humility, me. right? Yeah. And oh, I love that. I love that because um, when we first spoke, we talked about how the concept of right relation, right. And how mm. it's really important to, um, I think me as a person and making sure sometimes they're talking like literal relation, like your orientation. So your four directions. And mm. um, that would be something that opens up most ceremonies would be like the four directions. Sixth grandfathers mm-hmm. obviously would bring in a few more mm-hmm. um, for above and below. There's also the seventh direction is the self. You're like the center of the medicine wheel. And so mm. that's how you kind of orient things around you. Um, there's a Lakota practice even of putting up your tp tent poles and you need to have the right number of poles for every Mm. direction um but i think um it it ties into aba for me sometimes as a bcba when i approach things and it made me Mm. think of this um researchers Mm. kind of you know i'm gonna leave it to the circle Mm-hmm. I just think it's a nice analogy when you're pairing correctly with a client and you're getting a real assent from the person you're working with, mm-hmm. from their family, and mm-hmm. making uh, really appropriate goals and a treatment plan that's relevant to them. I feel like as a BCBA, that's something that I take into my practice. It's like, I'm I'm going to have some ideas but I'm not going to decide this for you. Let's meet. Let's mm-hmm. decide together. You yep. need to tell me what you need and then I can help you because I'm over here. I'm living my own life. I have my own ideas. I have my own history. I need to know yours. And mm. I need to know, um, I work with children mm. exclusively. And so yeah. I need to know, like, are you a big fan of the minions or are we going with Ninjago today? Like, mm. what? what is it? And I want you to have as much fun as you can because I'm going to be here with you. And I want to mm. have fun too. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that that first notion of like pairing 
in a sense. I feel like that's so cultural for mm. us. And I think who doesn't who doesn't like that? It's a it's a it's a first step for a reason, I think, in behavior analysis, especially if we want to have behavior analysis be the science of all human behavior. It needs to be an inclusive practice. And I think that's a good professional standard to maintain it in practice too. Mm. Uh, and it should be, I think it should be innately cultural. And I find that it is. Mm. What, what do you think about ABA and in, indigenous communities and, and, and kind of how that works? And, and is, is it something that can be, I mean, obviously we know it's a science that can be used with any human anywhere all the time, but, um, uh, but that doesn't mean they're going to want to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talking about consent and assent, I think if somebody really doesn't want something, they don't have to have it. And I think that's fair. Like the power to say no is so hard won, honestly, for a group of people that weren't able to say no Mm. to so many things about your way of life. I think it's a okay to be able to say no now. And if you don't want to have, um, a professional come into your home, you don't have to. And that's mm-hmm. power. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Um, I think that the lived experience of people who have suffered harm and abuse, like we've all, I think in the field now heard so many stories at this point from even autists, like BCBs who themselves hold a diagnosis of autism and that's a part of their identity and lived experience um those people are finding benefits and speaking and they're not going to discount other autism self-advocates who are saying i don't want to participate in aba right Mm. like there's something to be said about solidarity with people who just say no and who just opt out and i think that's I think that's important. I think the best thing you can do is your best Mm. every day. And so the more that we talk about, um, you know, I guess good practices, right? Relations. How does culture Mm. inform your practice of ABA? And the more that you actually do a good job and have good beneficial outcomes for your, the people that you're actually working with, Mm. um, that's going to be good for those that are there to receive it and who want it and who benefit from it. Mm. Um, I don't know. I feel like when you try to convince people to do Mm. things, uh, it already starts to feel out of alignment with like the ideas of choice. Right. Um, And it starts to feel like, Oh, am I trying to market this to you? Because I do live in the USA and capitalism is a big part of my everyday life. And so I'm going to market this to you now Mm. and you should buy it from me because now we've talked. Mm. I don't know. That doesn't feel great. I think it would be better if somebody had a genuinely good experience with ABA and they're like, this service genuinely helped my family. My Mm. child can speak to me and tell me they love me. They can tell me in Alelo Hawaii and in English, and it's changed our lives. Thank you. Mm. That message organically is going to be much more powerful than me in the field at work as a BCBA saying, this is the best science-backed program on the market, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
but I think I think it's complex and you're talking to groups of people that have historically been harmed by large institutions mm-hmm. and especially in healthcare. Um there's so there's so many examples. There's forced sterilization. There's mm-hmm. early experiments on populations in psychology. Um yep. there's just a lot of harm done. So I I think it's really empowering to just let people say no and that's mm. okay. And if uh, like like yeah, we can just do our best. <laughs> and if there's if there comes a time to make a big change, um it's important to always do that. But mm. I also see I see AB as a field um making space for that everywhere I turn also. So uh when I went to ABA I, I took my family to Boston mm. and I went to all the DEI flagged speeches and talks right. and workshops to see who was there. There were more than just behavior analysts. There were psychologists, there was climate researchers, you know, there mm. were um a lot of well, and it was in the stop the CESS movement happening right. too. So I have my awesome stop the shock t-shirt. Nice. I I just think it's there are so many levels to oppressed people supporting each other. And at the end of the day, I think the most powerful thing, and it's one of the things that we teach our early language learners to say no. Mm. And if you have people that just say yes and comply to everything that's thrown at them, that's not always going to be the safest mm-hmm. behavior or communication pattern to have. And when you're talking to people who have been historically oppressed, um, I think that that's it's empowering for them to say no and to opt out because they haven't always people have even now people don't always get to say no. And then sometimes you just have to do things. And that's, mm. It's it's OK to practice that. But then it's also empowering to have boundaries and say no to things. What about uh, what what sort of autism like in the Lakota community? That's an interesting question. Mm. My cousin was diagnosed with autism. Mm. Um, he had got an early diagnosis, and when we went back to the reservation when he was very young, mm. um, at the time he also suffered from seizures. And so Mm. um, there are a lot of cultural perspectives on like epilepsy and autism that Mm. now as research is getting deeper and people are talking to communities, there are different words and uh, language surrounding that experience. And Mm. I don't know as a group, um, I can't confidently say what is like the Lakota word or perspective Mm. of autism. Um, I've heard other communities describe it as somebody that is in two worlds or Mm -hmm. someone that has like literally their own world like they're in their world and um, other people are in the shared world Um, but my uh, uncle I guess my grandfather he's like an elder they go by age when you call titles of people in your family so Mm. He would be the age of a grandfather. Mm. Um, described my cousin's autism as being a uniquely close relationship with the creator. 
Mm. And it was very welcoming of it. Everybody just made sure that he had what he needed. And, you know, my mom, my auntie, his mom, she's just his biggest advocate and always has been. And so we all, I don't know, I guess acceptance is kind of another thing that's ingrained into Lakota culture in a lot Mm. of ways. Um, And so I would say regardless of ability, you just kind of do what you do to get your family together and keep everybody in the mix. And that was the same for for our family and our um, experience with having a family member with, you know, an autism diagnosis. And we were a family that talked about it. So I know Mm. that as a practitioner, some families, the idea of disclosing a diagnosis to someone is like a very thoughtful process and it can happen at different times in someone's life. Um, And for us, it was just saying things about him, like we would say about any of us that had anything going on um, and talking about it all the time to Mm. take care of each other. And Mm. so that was, that was my, again, just my lived experience with autism in a Lakota family. It was every generation from the generations above me and below me, like we we just practice, I guess, acceptance and mm. helping and accommodating. And uh we have we have high rates of I would say disability and chronic illness, but especially in Pine Ridge Reservation. Um we have some of the worst economic and health outcomes in the USA. Um and so I think that you'd be hard pressed to find any family untouched by disability Mm. and to maintain family connections and spiritual practices and cultural practices in the way that we are. I think that like, that's a a public health conversation that's been going on for a long time Mm. in general. And I think now with diagnosis rates being higher, I think um, I think autism acceptance, I'd, I'd go out and on a limb and say that I think that would be the main perspective. Hmm. Um, Grant talked about how he had a term, and it's in the show notes, I can't pronounce it, start with P, but he basically said their word for autism was his word start with P, and it meant he who thinks different. Oh yeah. Yeah. I like that. And he talked about, he was talking about, um, uh, talks a lot about his son. There's a great video. I don't know if you saw it, if I, if, if you saw it when I shared it, but it's called, um, what's it called? The gift of being different. Um, and it's just like okay. 15 minute short film that a documentary filmmaker made with Grant and his son, um and and just got deep into the into the community um and uh uh just kind of neat sort of incorporating you know some of his son's sensory things with um you know his daily he would he would have hit the daily hair brushing routine he did with his son because his son had beautiful long hair down down his back nice. and every every day dad would do all the brushing and all the things that you do one does to to get him ready for the day and and uh, you know, but realizing there's some sensory difficulties there, and and just taking mm-hmm. that into mind. Um, and he told me that that uh, you know ceremony uh, 
he described the ceremony as being the most inclusive place you'll ever be. Ah, uh, yeah, I love that. And and so when his son would come, you know, there obviously that he there would be there could be some some you know behaviors as it were um, um, that might be different than what others are engaging in and and uh you know he gives folks a bit of a you know a bit of a lay of the land before they come in but uh, you know everyone's very supportive and he participates and and you know it's just a this is a beautiful thing and there's a little bit of the video because he talks about how the ceremony is also very private you know it's not something you, yeah you're, you're not going to see a lot of documentaries of ceremony because if those are those are you know inclusive but inclusive to the people that are in the room um, mm-hmm. um but there's little tastes in the video and it, it's it, it's really cool yeah yeah that's no, beautiful i'll have to yeah. watch it i didn't yeah. watch it yet but i did see that quote i think i must have read it about yeah. the ceremony being the most inclusive place and i just that's that's beautiful he said something he, he's got this thing this connection with the kind of the autism society of alberta and does events with them and does a lot of you know advocacy and whatnot for the indigenous folks but i think for the last couple of years at, at this they have a an event he's he's he has set up a, a sensory teepee oh cool yeah, yeah, which is awesome and it's a classic you know sort of teepee design but you know inside it's you know much like these snoozeland sensory rooms you see other places so nice really cool i love that see and that's what like the indigenization of science come on that's beautiful who wouldn't like that i think that's so cool i was talking with naomi at haba this year which is Mm. where we met Mm -hmm. at the hawaii aba conference and we were talking a lot about getting away from decolonize and go back to re-indigenize because Mm. It feels empowering. It feels like an action, Mm -hmm. right? It feels like something we can do every day. And uh, I, it's important to keep us, and I'm saying us right now as Indigenous people, to keep us together into the future. Um, I'm a big sci-fi nerd. We talked a little bit on this call about how I'm just really into Star Wars. A lot of Indian people are into Star Wars. You're going to find like, You'll find native Boba Fett helmets. You'll find native Stormtrooper t-shirts. I have one. It's my favorite. Um, what was the name of the but, company, sorry, that made those? OXDX makes them. But okay. there's even what Stephen Paul Judd is an artist who makes mm. some very cool um, pictures of like old like historic photos of like tribal teepees. And then it'll be like a faded ATAT Walker in the background, oh, nice. or like an interior starship. Yes. Like they're very cool. You can get prints and t-shirts. Ooh. I'm not affiliated with them. I'm just a big fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's very cool to me because I like picturing indigenous communities in the future, right? Because mm. that means that we made it, it means we mm. lived, it means we maintained connections to people and culture and spirit into the future beyond us and there's Mm. a lot of I don't know if you've ever seen that brand it's big in the U.S. called seventh generation it's like a cleaning supply brand Clorox bought it eventually 
it's from that teaching that you're living today as a future ancestor, planning for the seven generations that will come after you. Mm. And it's just one of the innate things that we shouldn't like lose track of and why um, some of these companies and businesses, I think, and organizations and governments take these symbols and phrases from indigenous cultures because they're powerful. These mm. words have power. These practices have power. And maintaining the connections over time is, I think, what will carry us forward as people. And uh, it's just, it's beautiful. And it's only going to happen if we each own it. So mm. there's sometimes different um i think there's different people who abuse some of these loose ties to identity and so there's like a pretending movement where people yes. will call out like people who have made these false claims to indigenous identity and benefited yeah i think the key is if you have benefited financially or academically from a false claim it hurts extra right because the idea is that you've kind of taken something that someone else could have benefited from who mm -hmm. probably like a, someone who was just as qualified and actually was who they said they were. Um, it's, it's tied in to me to this idea of maintaining your culture to the future, because I think if you make a false claim that still stops with you, you're not mm -hmm. going to be able to carry that forward. You're not going to be able to tie that back behind mm -hmm. you. You're a link. You're a link in the chain from the past to the future. Yeah. And you can do what you want today. Sure, everybody has that choice. Um, but if you step out of alignment, you step out of the lineage, you step out of your ancestry, you're not really holding hands with the people before you and the people after you anymore. Mm. And that's that's the real truth of what it's about. What these teachings are about. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's fun. I encourage my cousins now to really claim their indigeneity. My mom is not. The second secret word is pine. Not a fan of the term indigenous. So I use a lot of these terms interchangeably for Native American, American Indian, indigenous, Indian. Um because my grandma, she usually goes with Indian. Like, that's how she would describe herself. Yeah. Um, she'll come into a place and be like, I'm going to Indian this place up. And she'll, like, you know, fix a curtain or something. Mm. <laughs> Do something her own way. Um, my mom likes Native American because she feels like it's more centering to, like, the location of her central lands in yeah. North America. Yeah. Yeah. And... Me being the next generation, right, in the social media era, I'm like, I love Indigenous. It unites mm -hmm. us all. It unites all the first people. Mm -hmm. um, but I have respect for all of it, too. And so I kind of use them all interchangeably. Yeah. And I think it depends on what my context is for what I would say. Am I identifying myself? Am I building a bridge between cultures? Um, I might use different yeah. words and terms depending on those kind of functions of the speech. Which mm. kind of brings us back to functional and cultural communication practices, right? <laughs> mm, right, right. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I, uh, in, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm on the outside, and so you know, 
as a settler, we're we're often concerned with the words we're using. Um, yeah, and there's often terms that that different cultural groups will use to describe each other that that we cannot use. Uh, mm-hmm. th- th- or we could use we could choose to use them yeah uh but yeah. uh but but uh <laughs> there was a there was a good Chappelle Dave Chappelle show uh, act where he, he talked about you can choose to use the n-word <laughs> but this sure. is but but <laughs> this is what might happen you know and so yep, yep, yep. um um but um but so and so from on the outside you know i think in up in canada in particular we don't really hear a lot of we don't hear a lot about we don't hear a lot of native canadian i've heard native canadian as a phrase i've, I've um but it it seems to be more either indigenous um, but I think because Canada is just, although we're a large in area, we're small in population, um, mm-hmm. we hear, we, I, I tend to hear, I, I hear more about individual, you know, first nations and, 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 yeah. you know, and, uh, and versus sort of the indigenous folks. I hear a lot about, you know, uh, I can't pronounce most of them, but I hear the Asha, I always <laughs> get that one wrong. The Asha, Bowie, is it? Uh, I, don't, like, uh, I don't know. There's, there's a Shinabon, a, yeah, and then there's Anishinaabe. There's yeah, like those two. Couple, and, and so, there's uh, two different. And, and, yeah, right. And then I those hear are about, close like, for me too. I hear about the Mi'k, Mi'k, the Mi'kmaq on, on the east coast. Mm-hmm. I hear, I hear obviously a lot about the local folks here. I hear a lot of we hear a yep. lot of so so. It's it's been more interesting to me as an outsider. And this is part of the reason, one of the many reasons why I wanted to talk to you was just to learn about Lakota, you know, and, and learn about kind of, kind of those terms. But it's, it's interesting that, uh, because I've heard some folks describe the term indigenous as being, you know, really a colonial term that Mm -hmm. that we as colonizers use to describe, you know, all everybody else that that was here before us. Yeah. Um, Well, and like it applies to like plants and stuff too. And it's almost a little bit dehumanizing in that sense. So I get it. (laughs) Yeah. And also it, it, there's that sort of, you know, I mean, I I like, I love how you look at it as, you know, we're all first peoples. Let's, let's unite in that way. I think that's awesome. But then others will look at it as now I can generalize from one yes. tribe to another one nation to another and you know oh, yeah. get back to that kind of whole conversation around kind of cultural responsiveness and and uh totally. you know are all black folks the same no you know are no. all indigenous folks the same no um mm-hmm. and then the way kind of social services has worked at least where i'm from is you know indigenous kids getting removed from their homes at you know such a incredibly high rate still today um you know yep. that it's called the foster care system it used to be called the 60s scoop and and the residential school era but it's all sort of the same thing and then getting put in a different indigenous community as if that'll solve all the problems <laughs> right <laughs> uh, here you go yeah oh no i think the number one highest thing is to find out people's affiliations family names right mm-hmm. tribal names that's that's the it's like the highest respect it's like even pronouncing somebody's name correctly right that you call them um and 
yeah, it's so powerful. I, I think erasure, like cultural erasure, erasure of people and place mm. is one of the biggest harms of colonialism. And so any attempt to be specific and tie to land, place and people like that's going to be your safest, best, most respectful path to choose. And probably the one to um, build the strongest bridges and connections too, mm. because you you feel seen, you know, when you're recognized and spoken to and identified. Mm. Mm. Do you have a, uh, we're talking about sort of traditions and traditional names and everything. Do you have a traditional name that you use? I do. I don't use it. I kind of uh, keep it personal still. That's mm. kind of where I'm at in my journey. So yeah, yeah. I would speak it to people mm. that are not in my family who I anticipate they would forget it because gotcha. then I feel like that's okay for me and comfortable. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't put it anywhere. My yeah. personal Instagram has uh, pictures next to my username and they, and if you know what the picture is, then you would know my name, mm. but people don't. And so it's still, I don't know. I'm in the place in my journey Mm. where I'm watching more people use their tribal names. Yeah. Um, and I love it and I'm there mm-hmm. for it. I'm not there yet. And I do have a tribal name given by my family mm. um, in Pine Ridge. We did ceremony. We did a big giveaway. Um, but I think I'd like to still wait and talk more and learn more yeah. and kind of approach it humbly. And that's, Again, part of the experience of being like an urban living in my homelands and mm. not living directly with all the generations of all my people. I'm sure people in my family just go by both. <laughs> They're yeah, interchangeable yeah. and they have both. I still, um, I don't know. I don't know why I have this hesitation around my tribal mm-hmm. name, mm-hmm. but I do. And so I'm just letting myself have that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I know for sure. No, I, I always ask. I was supposed to. I was yeah. Going to be talking to a, a woman this morning, but unfortunately, she got a bug from her little one and passed oh. on. So she now she's got the the, the flu. So I had to cancel. I mean, she's doing. Um, uh, she's got indigenizing uh, harm reduction. Oh, um, good. And uh, we're going to talk about that. And and on her Instagram is her full fairly traditional name that I won't even attempt to to sort of oh yeah you know pronounce uh but uh, I've been seeing it more and more with some of the folks I've been talking to but I've been seeing it with a lot of other folks I don't see it at all and it's just interesting sort yeah. of the, the different journeys for that and yeah you know and where you are and you're like like were you always connected to being Lakota, like even as a young child, or was that something? Because I know there's, I've seen a lot of folks in more recent times, and I think this is, it's been great. You know, I think part yeah. of, part, I think part of sort of one of the, it's, I, I think it's related to sort of all of the residential schools and all that stuff, inter, intergenerational trauma and stuff. That, um, yeah. You know, that, you know, that, and, and just share on racism that, um, you know, folks, lost connections with their culture languages disappearing i hear so much about you know there's one speaker of that language left or two speakers of that language left and so on um and i'm hearing a lot more you know younger folks um 
you know, either trying to revitalize languages or trying to connect to community when, you know, their, their parents and grandparents may not have. And, and so yeah. I've been hearing, you know, so what was that for you? Were you, were you, were you, was it from, from, from beginning right there? Yeah. 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 We always, and that's part of that, like blessing from my grandma is never mm. losing connections um never losing family connections mm. so we always knew we were at Lakota um the language is part of the Holy Rosary Mission School where she was forced to speak English um Lakota was not allowed in her school mm. yeah so when we were really little she tried to teach my sister and I Lakota there was a time where I was really good at spelling and Mm. doing great in language arts in school and so she was teaching me latin and it was helping my spelling bee performance and Mm. then she's like if you can learn latin you can learn lakota so we tried (laughs) but some of the words were so long and Mm. i didn't have um any like my grandma could speak it and pronounce it and read it but it was not fluent anymore for her for telling stories Mm. so like she could do and still does. Like she'll say Ishtima, like go to sleep. Um, Unchi is the word for grandma. So we mm. can say like Unchi for our grandmas. But, and I know some greetings, Hinhani wash days, like good morning, what I said to you in the morning. Thank mm. you. There's so many words for thank you. So many words for family in Lakota. Mm. Um, and I just keep learning more and more now that I'm done with school because the thing that I would say, um, is that we grew up in Wintu and Pitt River areas, tribal lands in Northern California. So we knew like mm. Paiute, Hoopa people, um, different. It was always like intertribal. And that's kind of, I think, this experience for most mm. um, Native people in the USA is you end up building, if you don't live on your tribal land, you're going mm. to probably build a lot of intertribal connections. So this is mm. my shirt from the Oahu Intertribal Council. They mm. do a big powwow every year um, with Hawaiian people. And it's, again, like a intertribal mixed indigenous group. Um, so I was always the Lakota kid, right? <laughs> like everyone that was like, they're like, oh no, we're Wintu. And like a group of like, like Wintu elders. Um, but it was like clear I wasn't Wintu, I was right. Lakota. And so um, that's kind of that feeling, though, again, of being like the only one. Even in Oahu right now, I think we're the only Lakota family. And I'm looking. So if anyone watches this and you're Lakota and you're in Oahu, come find us. Because at the last powwow two years ago, there was another Lakota family, Two Bulls family. And they moved. <laughs> so we're back to being the only ones. Mm. Um, but that's why I wanted to even start referring to myself as the, the Lakota BCBA. And when um, Naomi reached out to connect us, I'm like, let's find more. There's got to be more. Every time I look deeper, I find more. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and that's where like the idea with my tribal name comes out. Like, do if I put it out there, what will I? what will I get back? Right. Mm-hmm. And having faith and like the good faith of communities and others. But from growing up, we always knew we were Lakota. We also knew that we weren't traditional. And so we've had a, like a really flexible, I think, identity in that sense. Sometimes I, as a kid, I was 
jealous of kids that were like Mexican or Korean because I felt like people don't think that you're from the olden days. They just assume that you're like making tamales with your family or Mm -hmm. like watching Korean dramas and listening to K-pop. Like there's modern relevance for a lot of these bigger cultures. Yes. And that's so much of what I think a lot of us like native kids have been craving growing up is that we're still taught by U.S. schools if you're in the public school system. So you're still going to hear stories called Squanto, the Pilgrim's Friend, every November Mm. for Thanksgiving, which is a complete erasure of that man's life, who was a real person, and the tribes related to the even the stories of the first Thanksgiving. They don't teach you about like the Pequot tribe or the Wampanoag tribe. They teach you Thanksgiving, corn Mm. and beans, you know, and you're like, (laughs) that's not what happened Mm. um so now in the land of social media and like pop culture there's so much like indigenous rap and hip-hop coming out there's reservation dogs the fx show which is just groundbreaking and beautiful my little instagram handle of the lakota bcba was inspired by the Sioux chef, Sean Sherman, who is mm. also Oglala from Pine Ridge. Mm. Just won a Julia Child Award, has this like award-winning restaurant, re-indigenizing and making really fancy Indigenous-inspired foods. I mean, Ooh. I just think, I think there's a lot there. And I think we're figuring out in general as Indigenous people of how to like take up our space. And how to take up our space in like relevant modern culture and just kind of checking everyone too. Like if you're thinking of, I've had people in my social circle when I said that I was Lakota, look at me and ask me like, how, how did you get here? Referring to Hawaii. Like mm. how did, how could we even have, cause there's powwows, I think on Big Island and Oahu. And they're like, how did, how did Indians get here? right and it's like a real genuine like they're flabbergasted Mm. like i'm it wasn't the nina and the pinta and the santa maria how did you get here i'm like bro airplanes exist (laughs) (laughs) we have credit cards it's okay (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i think i've i've always known as lakota i also knew that i wasn't traditional obviously i knew i wasn't living in the black hills and so now that I'm older, I'm an adult, I'm a mother, I think I've got to take hold of what I do have if I'm going to pass it along. Mm. And I know that my elders do want that. Mm. Well, a little more about just kind of why the Lakota BCBA. I mean, obviously you're a BCBA and you're Lakota, so it should be kind of a no-brainer. But but what what is it that you're kind of hoping will come with that, you know, like, are, are you, are you, are you wanting to sort of, you know, just to be able to talk more about being Lakota? Is it, is it, you know, is it to help maybe encourage others that maybe this is a field you could get into because there aren't any of us, any of you, sorry, sort of in there. Um, 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 What, 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 what are kind of some of the hopes sort of for the future as, as the Lakota BCBA? Oh, I think all of that. I think all of that. And 
RBT, being an RBT is a great entry-level professional clinical job. And I think as people develop skills and talents, I think if you have any talent at like being a safe person for children, because that's Mm -hmm. how I really got into this field. Mm. Um, I had a natural talent at being like a safe big sister, big cousin, big auntie to little kids Mm. around me. Mm. It was a perfect entry level when I started meeting kids with different diagnoses who didn't have a lot of safe adults or safe older people or older kids to connect with. I could be that person relatively easily. Mm. And then that natural skill started building in with clinical practice. And I kept going in the field until I could train others into some successful strategies, which is a lot of what I do as a BTBA. Adding my Lakota identity onto this little thing, I hope to encourage others to come try it, come try Mm -hmm. out some ABA. You might be that person. Also, there's Indigenous people out there that I think I don't know. We just let's just add another voice, I guess. And it is easy because that is who I am. And I don't, I don't know. I don't want to have to uh, hide parts of myself anymore as I get older. As I get mm. older, I'm finding what it means to kind of transition through the phases of life um, in a cultural sense. And mm. so what I'm finding is that. I am now becoming more of a leader. And that means that I need to like act like that and call myself that. And Hmm. um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think the Lakota BCPA, I hope is a platform and something that other people can connect with, can easily share, can Mm -hmm. remember and pass along. (laughs) My name is Valerie. I do have a great Amy Winehouse song with Valerie in it, but I don't think you're going to relate that to ABA. (laughs) I don't think you'd remember me in particular. The Lakota BCBA, it kind of sets me apart and hopefully could be something to just build bridges, build connections, build community. I think that's, again, it's a cultural practice to build community. And so if we all Hmm. can't find each other, we won't be able to to really participate in um into what that means and mm-hmm. there's a lot of research on cultural responsive aba but it's from the perspective of a white practitioner going into a community of color or some other underrepresented community and that's not the perspective that you're looking at if you're a practitioner from one of those communities mm-hmm. so um I think in an effort for us to change some of that as practitioners, we still have to find each other. The third secret word is grant. First and then build that and then share what those perspectives are. I mean, who knows what we're going to come out with, right? And that's kind of the idea of um, the research you're referring to. Like, let's just make the circle first and then we can figure out what the circle wants to do next. Yeah. We can't, we can't even get there if we don't know where we all are. So you said you had an RBT from the Seneca Nation? Yes. How, how did they find you and become an RBT? And maybe, I mean, maybe there's just someone we have to yeah. have on to ask them that question directly, but. 
I think they'd be a great person to talk to and explain. They didn't find me in particular. We work at a very special small company on the windward side of Oahu. And mm. um, our boss, our CEO, always calls us like the collection of misfits. And mm. we are just all different people. And in my introducing myself as like this native person, oh, I'm Lakota. Oh, I'm Seneca. It's like, no way. The first Seneca person I've ever met in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just uh, when you think about things being in right relation and in alignment, I think you kind of find and become connected with who you're meant to in this life. And I think mm-hmm. that's just what's happening here. And mm-hmm. the other people that I've that I'm supervising now who uh have different types of that blanket kind of indigenous identity are some from you know different lands in the Pacific which is where we are now so that's if we're going to be set because now I'm that's my role I'm like a settler I'm a guest in this Mm -hmm. other tribal land and it's kind of a comfortable place for me because I was born in California so that feels like what I've always tried to be just a good guest. And so I'm still trying to do that. Um, Mm. But I think it's, I think it's okay for me now um, as I honor community here in Hawaii to also carry with me like the Lakota piece and represent this piece here. Mm. And I'm not the only, I know that I'm not the only like Native American person on this island. and. I hope I'm not the only Native American BCBA practicing here now. Um, and I want to know if that's true or not. <laughs> do you so, do you know any others? Like not just not in Hawaii, Hawaii, but just period? No. Mm. I don't. Mm. And someone else asked me that and I said no. And they were like, really? That's so surprising. And I was like, well, the statistics really show that we... Mm combined to make less than a percent across no, it, all it's not tribal nations. At all. it's 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 unfortunately it's not and i don't want it to stay that way and mm. again it comes into like identity so we have to identify who's who's here and first nations people in canada like i'm following your podcast now because it's like a library it's you're building up a real nice resource there mm. um that we can connect through and look look for and I'm expanding a little bit in my thought about where I can go as an indigenous behavior analyst too which circles do apply to me can I go Mm. into urban Indian health can I go into Mm -hmm. um you know psychology conferences are there places where I can fit in and connect with other native professional practitioners of different disciplines and what Mm -hmm. unites us is a cultural perspective maybe more than a daily professional practice and then where can we build those bridges from there? Mm-hmm. I think you can. Um, and I, you know, and I, I, you know, I would encourage checking out the, the SIP group. Yes. I'm excited about that. Yeah. I mean, and that, and that group right there, you know, if, if you understand sort of how many psychologists there are in the world compared to how many behavior analysts there are in the world, way more right um and you know uh, there are 200 members in of sip 200 indigenous psychologists so 
it's not at all surprising that there aren't any indigenous BCBAs because, you know, there's probably about, you know, if, if the math is right, there's, I mean, there's, I, I, I'm just guessing, I don't even know what the stats are. I, yeah. mean, I assume there's at least 10 times as many psychologists as there are behavior <laughs> analysts, if not more. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's not surprising that there might only be two or three of yeah. you out there based on that sort of thing, but yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's exciting because I saw your podcast with Mark Standing Eagle days. Yeah. And that's how I found out about SIP. And then I follow him on social media now. And he was connecting with Dr. Thema Bryant at one of their psychology conferences, which was, um, I don't know if they connected. I just know that they were both there. Mm -hmm. But that connection reminded me of seeing Dr. Thema at uh, ABAI. And she was the only person to attempt a land acknowledgement. And it brought right. me to tears. And it, I was just like, you know, these things, there's something happening professionally where these communities and groups are coming in solidarity and support mm. of each other. And I want to be a part of that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Right on. Well, I think, I think, uh, I hope this helps. Oh, Help. Thank you. I do too. Uh, I think it will. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to, maybe when we hit hit stop, you can connect me with your, your Seneca RBT, because I think that'd be a cool chat yeah. too. And just, okay. I, and I just like talking to RBTs in general from, from, uh, I say that, but I haven't really had any in the podcast, but um, yeah. I like the idea of talking <laughs> to RBTs speak, uh, that, are, that come from the, you know, the, the global majority groups, because I think, you know, they're the ones that can really encourage their peers to 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 get oh, in yeah. here and 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 see what it's like and see the value and and uh, so it'd be cool to hear hear their story and hear yeah hear how that all goes. So we have some very talented RBT, so I'll be yeah. more than happy to to make that connection. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and I know enough. I know enough of you now that maybe we could do a little podcast sometime with with a few indigenous bcbas and have a chat and right you know, share some ideas and just meet yeah 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 be fun. that's powerful yeah yeah thank you so much well thank you valerie for coming on this was cool i learned a lot <laughs> yeah, back at you <laughs>